Hello to everyone and welcome to Data Chats, a series of webinars and podcasts from Pragmatic Institute that help tackle the biggest challenges facing today's data teams and data-driven organizations. My name is Erin Thibault. I'm Marketing Manager at Pragmatic Institute and your host for today's event. So, as some of you may know, Pragmatic has recently relaunched our data practice, which helps organizations leverage data to drive business success. Our courses and resources are designed to provide individuals and teams with actionable guidance, hands-on practice, and a business-oriented approach so they can solve problems and propel decision-making with data. And if you want to find out more about our data practice, you can go to pragmaticinstitute.com slash data. Now, we couldn't do any of this without our data advisory board, which features industry leaders and experts from a wide variety of organizations and whose efforts help ensure our, the alumni of our courses can have a strategic impact in an ever-evolving data and business landscape. One of those board members we're excited to say is here today as our guest, Eugenie Packer. Eugenie Packer is the Senior Director of Development Systems and Analytics at Mount Sinai Health Systems. And she's a graduate student in statistics at Hunter College. And as I mentioned, she is a data advisory board member at Pragmatic Institute. She lives in New York City and she has designed, developed, implemented, and overseen fundraising systems, business intelligence, data products, and analytics platforms at organizations of all sizes. However, data wasn't, already, wasn't always her primary focus. Eugenie brings a background in the arts and a master of fine arts into her work. So uh, we'll be kicking off this conversation by learning a little bit about your background. So I'll stop my share screen. Hi, Eugenie, welcome. I'd love to, to hear a little bit about what you studied originally and what's first sparked your interest in data. Thanks, Erin, thank you for having me. Um, welcome everybody. Um, it is a bit of a twist and turn. I, I don't always know data, it would be my calling if that it's even something I would say, probably most likely now that I'm in my 40s, this is pretty much my calling. Um, data, it's not something you would associate yourself with if you're born in the 70s. Okay, there's no, it's a, it's a, that's the beginning of computing, uh, IBM mainframe, big ones. So the idea of having a career in something such so niche, it's a bit uh, inconceivable. I didn't really, I sort of stumble into it. How about that? I stumble into data work uh, through just a lot of trial and error in a different career uh, that one tried to imagine themselves in, you know, throughout college or in your beginning in your career. Um, I didn't study anything to do with, I didn't study computer. Uh, at best, I would say I only have one computing, computer programming course I took at a community college as part of the general requirements. And I study accounting. I study accounting and then I became a math major. And then I went on thinking that maybe I can also do something creative. Uh, my parents are the creative type. None of them do data. The closest I can think of in terms of inspiration in the science field would be my stepfather. He does tinker with his computer a lot. So I do know how to get my, get my way around a PC using DOS command mode back in the early nineties to launch Tetris. Oh, the early days, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. That is my involvement with computing. Yeah, it is, it, is, it is through a lot of beginning work, knowing that I don't want to be a waitress. I don't want to work in the food industry. I don't want to sell. I don't want to work in retail. But I did like working with a computer system. That never floored me when I work at a hotel front desk. I like, I like working with a system to book people, make reservations and stuff. So I think that might be my first real brush with database. Now you studied art in undergrad. Can you talk a little bit about that, that arts background that you had and maybe how that, that kind of intersected with data? 
Um, I, I like solving problems. I think solving a problem in a two-dimensional sense, solving problem in a three-dimensional sense, it's appealing or solving, solving, solving problems in a more abstract sense, like solving a math problem. Um, those are of great therapy to me. I, I like to have, like say if I have a bunch of stuff, I need to fit on a piece of paper. Where do I fit them? How do I organize them in a, in, in, in a two-dimensional sense? That is to me no difference than having a bunch of data that I need to now find a place to put them and store them. And in a way that is sort of like kind of how I would put this, the two things that I like equally much, it is on here in a screen, a drawing of a lot of entangled wire in my neighborhood and the messiness of a database schema. They are just exciting in so many ways. <laughs> I don't know why. Maybe I do like the idea of, of organizing a mess and turn them into something more structured and, 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 and make sense out of, out, of, out of something that is inherently messy. The, the way that data connect with each other and you need to have that unique identifier to connect every piece of data to get from point A to point B, that in itself is a very much a journey, a life cycle, kind of how we go from point A to point B as we live. So yeah, I would say those are, those are what I find interesting and that can make me do it, you know, all the time and lose myself in essentially. Yeah. Yeah. I love that idea of kind of like maybe data is a little bit about like imposing order on chaos. Maybe that's what a database management system is. And maybe art is, is a little bit about, creating something of chaos as well. Um, so yeah, I, I find it really interesting that you, after graduating, you pursued your master's of fine arts. How did you kind of build on that, that passion for fine art and then transition more into a data position after you graduated? And, and once you were, um, you were living in New York City as you were getting your master's, right? Yep. As everybody knows, college degrees are expensive. And I only had the luxury of not having to work for maybe a year in college. And most of, most of the time before and afterwards, I do have to hold down a part-time job. One that would give you some, um, some bandwidth to do your, do your work. And so that is sort of how I hold on to the thread of working with data. I know I have a knack for it. I learned that from even working as a college worker at a community college, um, not at a community college, but while I was doing my community college degree, I knew that working with data, sitting down, it's something that I could, I could easily do. And I know that about me. So I've been seeking out career opportunity where I could blend myself into that data world again and from then on, I just kind of start from the bottom, working with data, merging data, cleaning data, then to the point of having to implement a database and consolidate databases, bringing data back and forth, and just getting more and more complicated in terms of scope. The data set uh -huh. got bigger, the kind of uh, clientele got more, you know, in terms of scale, the kind of population we serve gotten bigger. but. The, now, which role was this where you were? Oh, yes. Um, so when I moved, before I moved to, while I was still in college, after there's a gap year between my BFA and MFA, um, I work at the local YWCA, my second brush with nonprofit. And I just basically, a, a team of, it's a very small, small YWCA local operation out at West Coast a small, small town of West Coast. And I just work on the database and making sure things are organized and so they can get to it. Um, I have been with nonprofit ever since, and I use that skill to sort of get myself into the arts, having uh, moved to New York to study MFA uh, at Brooklyn College. I need a part-time job just to pay, pay my rent. Um, and I work at the new museum, starting at the as a very bottom development associate, a development assistant just to enter data and processing membership packets. Um, so from then on, I just find myself doing more and more with data and sort of work my way up there. 
it is in a sense fortunate that I never had to compete uh, with other people who would have my same position. So in a sense, I am the NLBL expert. And those are the days that we don't really, especially when you work in a small company, the awareness of having to be very invested in the data world is just not always there, not always financially mm -hmm. feasible. So they always relegate that kind of role to someone who is in the low hanging fruit, in the lower in the food chain. And I happen to love it. So I just kind of keep going and going, going with it to the point that I just have slowly rise to the, to the position where I could then take my skill somewhere else, which is like 10 years ago when I got the opportunity to join Mount Sinai. Well, it sounds like I think a lot of people have a conception of like, oh, a data entry job as being very entry level. And it sounds like there is a way even from an entry level position where you're simply inputting data and cleaning up data to then build on that from there until you have more and more responsibility in like putting new systems or processes in place or creating database, database systems themselves. So I like, and maybe not having a, some direct competition and having the space to, to carve out a bigger role for yourself was a real advantage in that sense. Yes, and I also have the benefit of timing. Mm -hmm. um, back in the 20 years ago, the awareness of data just not quite there yet. There is internet, there is computer, but there is no yeah. awareness of big data. We don't nearly transmit so much data. Giving away our personal data is at a pace that you currently have at the moment. So it is. There is a lot of opportunity to sort of grow with the job and be there when the demand increase. So I see that as part of the luck aspect of it. Yeah. Maybe it yeah, would have been the data a landscape has story. changed so much since you first started working in data to now. What's like kind of you've noticed about that that change in the landscape over time is it the sheer like proliferation of roles or the conception of of big data and what it can do i would say that having seen what have having sort of a certain sort of like watch on the sideline as someone who work with data but not quite in the middle of all of the up and coming technology i have been always feeling like I am not good enough. I don't have what it takes to make the big bucks. Having seen all of the new products that they're peddling, you know these are coming in the horizon, but you don't. I don't feel like I know enough to know what does it mean for me. I know it's going to cost a lot of money. So in a lot of ways, I've just been watching. I've been watching and when I see it enough to a point that it cascades down to my level where we could adopt it and have a use case for it, then I can make the case for bringing it, bringing it in-house. But um, the trend has been that there is a lot of buzzwords and they would come and then it would be repeated. It's like a fad. It's like the word of the year, word of the quarter. But then slowly and surely they would just eventually fade into obsolescence and then you never hear from them again. I felt like Big data, in terms of proportion, is not a word you hear anymore. It is a word you hear all the time, seven or eight years ago. Big data, everything's big data, big data, big data. I, don't, I haven't heard of big data. And then the next thing after big data was IoT, Internet of Things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I also felt like that has went away in a COVID. That doesn't mean they won't come back up. But then I also I feel like maybe because of the conductors, semiconductor shortage, Maybe the, 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 the idea of trying to make everything IoT sort of have to take a backseat to the fact that we need cars, we need to have the basics. So maybe IoT, IoT is still, <laughs> yeah, IoT is great, but then maybe we need to get the basic first. So yeah. that, I could be wrong. I could be completely wrong. I could be just in a different, maybe Facebook's giving you've been a different able thing to, to see read. kind of the trends ebb and flow over time. I mean, so I'd love for you to talk more about your work at Mount Sinai, and you've you've now been there for 10 years, which is an amazing tenure um, at one company. So how has your role evolved over the years, and now you're in the senior position, and what do you love most about the work that you're doing now in databases at Mount Sinai? I mean, and also, you know, it's still fundraising, you had mentioned, but it's a big shift from the new museum to go to Mount Sinai Health Systems. 
Yeah, I mean, my fundraising expertise is what really got me the foot in the door in Mount Sinai. I know nothing about patients. I am not a biostatistic major at all. I would be, how would you say? I probably come through it, you know, through the back door. I, I, I have a business domain expertise. And in the nonprofit world, they do need people who work with data as much as they need fundraisers. There's lots of fundraisers. Those are the obvious uh, obvious uh, pool of applicants and the go-tos. It is fundraising, that fundraiser that makes the fundraising goals and make, the, make any nonprofit uh, function. However, it is, it is very, very much like the, the core of how do you keep track of everybody's performance? How do you know you're raising enough money to make the goal and that everybody's performing well? Those are all about data these days. And if, if there is no data to show for, there is nothing you can measure against in terms of success. Um, this is going from the board member, board level down to, you know, just a $5 donation. You need to keep track mm -hmm. of, you need to be able to cut the text letter and be yeah. able to verify that. So um, the, the, the data has been the sort of the threat for how, how every business sort of function, even anyone has HR. HR, you need a database system, you need to keep track of this, is the person, this is, this is a social security number, this is the last time we have W4 for them. So everything is kind of connected in that operational sense. Uh, I would say fundraising is no different than a sales uh, in a for-profit world in that mm. people's goals are important and whether or not you have leads and what are the leads coming from, how do you scope it out to make sure this is a better lead than the others. That whole infrastructure of research and intelligence are always there. In terms of my Mount Sinai roles, I at first it is a very very much a just a one single CRM management and but then that CRM um, as we grow as we go through multiple capital campaigns which is the second one which I'm in and that our single Mount Sinai medical center became a health system which absorbed a number of other hospitals in the New York City area and their, um, and their the, databases yeah. and their own different yeah. data systems. The, yeah. the demand of that data work kind yeah. of grew. And then my team went from team of three to team of eight now. And the need for data to not have someone just press a button to generate the button, put, generate the report and put it in an email and send it out. That piece is it's, it's in need, that need of automation, get the data to the hands of our user faster and more on-demand and less human-centric and less, you know, that sort of business need to sort of drive our uh, operation to a point where we need to take on report servers, we need to have Tableau, we need to have some way to schedule these reports to go out, we need to let people to be able to interact with the information anytime and have a place to host them. Um, and of course, when, uh, there is never going to be a, a, a situation where you can't let people donate online. So that whole online yeah. donation infrastructure is also something that is now part of much very integrated and part of our day-to-day -day work. Mm -hmm. So then now there is now user experience having to deal with problem solving, not just on our end user, but then donors might call and say, I can't make this donation, whatever. Can you fix it? Can you look into it? This is the error code. If you even have that. Yeah. So yeah, it's just it's just sort of kind of go go with the flow of how e-commerce, how everybody is just so data hungry and impatient. <laughs> yeah. So we've talked a bit um, previously about how something that interests you and that works beautifully at this intersection of of kind of art and design and information design and data is you think very intentionally about how you design reports and how you display the information to your stakeholders from these different databases. I think that that's a concern for a lot of people who are trying to become better storytellers around their data and who want to make sure that the information they're sharing is both heard and understood and then acted on. So if you could just talk a little bit about that interest that you have in information design um, and I have an example report that you shared here. And then what is your, 
what is your best advice for other people who want to design reports or dashboards more effectively? Sure. Um, so working with, like I said, organizing a two-dimensional service sur surface, uh, whether it's with drawing, picture, diagram, or information, that has always been like my my love. I I like I like play around with a space and try to make things fit. And this is sort of a uh, not a dashboard per se, but it's more like a snapshot of a particular gift officer's uh, progress as of mm. you know this fiscal year. And we have obviously a lot to pack it in. And some of these information you are basically tasked to put in uh, by your client, right? By the person who ordered this report made. And in that you need to summarize all this information. But, and then it is our job to make it pleasant, make it readable. Um, part of the strategy in making something readable is no different than what I would teach a student in design. Is those design principle about balance, contrast, you know, mm. negative, you know, space. Uh, what is the foreground? What is the background? Background's obviously the white space. But then, if you want everything to read in a way that, without uh, or being overwhelmed, you need to leave plenty of space around the different facets of information. Color schemes are also very important. Mm. I always try to use color uh, in the most discretionary, judicious sense in a sense that too much color is probably not a good thing because it is not the color you try to say, it is the information you try to say. So color is in a way is very much to use to distinguish. I'm trying mm -hmm. to distinguish different pieces of information I'm communicating. So if I'm talking about the goal, I'm trying to stick with one color. This way it would travel through out the page that you know that when it's this magenta color, it is about the goal. And that goal is different than the rest of the information that's showing black or cyan or purple, because that is two different pieces of information. So they're there to distinguish and separate and to delineate and distinguish. Um, I leave plenty of white space when I can to create a sense of breathing room. If everything is too much to the edge, it is just going to be too busy. You can't focus and you don't you don't really want to look at it. A lot of times you find a report overwhelming. Is it because the data is overwhelming? Is it because there's so much information? Or is it because you just don't know where to begin? So yeah, there's, there should be really some- common problem is, is it an information overload in people's reports? Especially if you're communicating with people who are not as data literate, might kind of see a bunch of numbers and freak out. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, that, that threshold is different from person to person. Someone, yeah. someone could be overwhelmed with four pieces of information because they're too, oh, too, too simplified. They don't know where is it coming from. Some people prefer a long spreadsheet. There's still mm -hmm. a lot of our clients who just want long spreadsheet. They don't want this because they don't know where this number is coming from. They're first skeptical. We have long spreadsheet for them to, to, to look at too. And also in a report, you always have to worry about the data you have is not going to be the constant number set of constant set of data. So you have to plan ahead. A report that needs to be evergreen will have to account for the fact that if you're in Q1, you need to leave room for Q4. If you're in Q4, you probably would have as much information as possible. So you always have to sort of leave some room for data to grow, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, to year to fill in. And it is iterative. Sometimes things will spill over to a next line and they cover something up and then there'll be surprise, surprise. But that is sort of the, the, the life cycle of a report that needs to be evergreen, always ready and mm -hmm. depending on the data. So that would be, that would be the challenge from say a one-off analysis that it's a one-time use. Mm -hmm. and, and this is a example of a dashboard. If yeah, you this is a Tableau one. dashboard. A Tableau dashboard is very different in the sense that this is not meant to be printed. You could screenshot it. You could, you could do some screenshot and, and, and capturing and, and, and put it in an email. But the, um, the intention of a dashboard is for you to interact with and discover certain piece of information yourself. So you don't want to 
label too much. You don't want to necessarily have to put too much stuff in there and not allow the sense of discovery because a dashboard has a lot of information there, but not everything, not, not, not every information will be important to everyone. Mm. So you have some key information and hopefully depending on your role and depending on your expectation of that dashboard, you will find what you need. And that always, that's not always true. Some people would, that, I mean, that basically means that you would have to have a dedicated dashboard based on the core function, but we try not to make dashboard that only fit one person and one specific use because having to maintain all of these dashboard, it's, would be pretty cumbersome. it's a cost. <laughs> it is a cumbersome. Things need to be updated. And then every year roll yeah. around, you have to change certain things. So this is sort of a similar, similar approach. Color should be consistent. And in a way, Tableau make it very easy for us. All of those templates that they have in terms of color scheme won't really do you wrong. Um, you might have to take some stuff away, like you know, when you're dealing with a chart, like the very top right where there's lines going from January to 2019. Mm. Um, those line chart, do you really need those legends in the back? Do you need to have that grid in the back? You probably don't. Do you need to have the y-axis? Probably not. Anything you can take away to make that more simplified, have a more simplistic and minimal look, that convey the bare minimum information, that would be my suggestion. Uh -huh. Otherwise, anything that is not necessary to be there, you're just gonna overwhelm your senses to the point that you don't know where your eye should land on. So it sounds like kind of the main, the main overarching advice, if you wanna think of these design considerations as you're creating dashboards and reports is making sure that I mean, color has meaning in the art world and in the data world. So making sure that that meaning is consistent where you use the color and then potentially edit down when in doubt and leave that white space, leave that breathing room. Yeah, that's, I think that's really valuable. So I want to kind of pivot a little bit and talk about your, uh, your kind of learning journey over the years because you've had this really interesting path through academia and the data world, you know, what skills did you feel it was important to develop the longer you were working in data and how did you acquire those skills? Um, working with data, I, I would not say that I have a lot of academic solid experience. My degree was in art after all. I have to supplement by doing. I do and end up having, if I have questions, I look it up on Google. Some of the times I don't even know what I'm looking for. I have to, I don't even know what the word to use to even do a Google search. Um, but I, I do have to ask my IT colleagues, like if I need to look up something on Google and this is what I'm trying to do, what would that, what would that, what, would, what word would you use to even search it? And they would then give me pointer. Oh, you're looking at this. You're looking, the word you're thinking of is concatenate. I'm like, oh, okay. So I typed in concatenate and I got, okay, better results. Um, I, I think about, you know, right after my daughter was born about eight years ago, I felt like I'm at a point where I am gonna either do more of the same or there is something that I am not even beginning to look into. So I start poking around the internet. There's, that's the beginning of Coursera, MOOC, where, um, the idea that you can take your own learning uh, in your own hand and pace your own learning and don't need to really go through it. This micro, this micro courses, nano courses sort of started to become more popular. And before that, you have to actually pay money to get in the course or learn from a continuing education environment in a college. Um, and I, that's how I begin to dabble into whatever this is called data analysis, whatever it is that's, you know, how do you do exploratory analysis using R? That is sort of how I started this journey of going, eventually decided to go back to school for statistics. Mm -hmm. And you got a better idea of what, what it was you didn't know that you would want to know to kind of progress in your career. Yeah, yeah, I would say, you know, at some point, are you happy with just doing what you do and more of it? 
and I don't, I feel like maybe I haven't really learned enough. There's something I can still do that is not just beyond what I, what beyond organizing data in a piece of paper um, or putting them in the right place and getting them out and then putting them in, putting them in. So, and it is, 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 it is also a good time too, because it is still a very nascent technology and an information, a body of body of knowledge. Uh, it's also changing in a sense that there is a lot of exciting stuff that can still happen. Huh. And so there's a, that level of mystery that you kind of go along with it. Um, that appeals to me. And also I always felt kind of weird, kind of like a, not regret, but like, hmm, I never really did finish that math degree. I ditched an undergrad. So maybe <laughs> my, my 20 years later coming full circle and trying to finish something that I haven't really managed to finish. Yeah. Now, what do you think from your statistics degree that you are close to finishing up? What do you think you want to take from that into your role at Mount Sinai? We're currently doing some predictive analytics to try to model prospect and donor behavior. Um, that is, that just kind of started this year. So there's definitely a lot more to be done. I have a team who is willing to sort of get on this journey with me. And I have people who are excited about doing this. So in a sense, having the statistics degree do give me some potential option to either continue what I'm doing in the business domain of fundraising and nonprofits, or I could probably try to go somewhere else and see what other business domains data need and data science considerations there are. I mean, I'm, I always felt like you, you have one set of skill. You're not, you're not just really only going to be able to do fundraising. Things are transferable things. There's always parallel mm -hmm. and you can do this one thing. Well, doesn't mean this is all you can do. So I'm always curious about what this can take me now that I have some official qualification, um, whether or not, it's possible, I don't know. It seems like it's pretty frustrating out there in the sense that they always want some business domain background. Yeah, yeah, and speaking of that frustration, I mean, what are what do you think as are the biggest challenges you've encountered? Uh, we've talked about, you know, the need for that domain specific knowledge. Is that something you're seeing industry-wide? Like there's a real focus on knowing the ins and outs or the subject matter expertise of, of that particular industry or like whether it's finance or healthcare, what are, what are some of those challenges you've come up against? Definitely, definitely the business domain knowledge. Um, even though I work for Mount Sinai Health System and I am being propositioned for a number of products, because of my title, because I think I could make decision on buying, onboarding a piece of software and, and, and make it happen. That doesn't mean I can't. I work in a fundraising office of a big health system. I have no patient experience. I, I, I don't work with medical record data to the point to know what at the ins and out of Epic is about. So even within healthcare, I can't just make a lateral move to go suddenly work for the, 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 the population health department just to wrangle with their data because it's a totally different yeah. database you're dealing with. Um, but then over the years, I have always wanting to sort of make that transition. Mm -hmm. So with starting with the Grateful Patient uh, fundraising program, which gave me the opportunity to uh, start getting involved with patient data and to try to tease out these are what kind of, what is encounter, what is inpatient, outpatient, what is specialty diagnoses. Um, so there's all these different way to, to sift through the data and the kind of question you tend to be asked when you try to get the list of patients. Well, what's the date? Do you need to see, is it ins insurance status? What is the name? You need to see the people who paid insurance or you need to see the actual patient information. So then that world started to become a little more familiar in a sense that I could talk a pretty good talk if I must. And I wouldn't say that I'm at a point where I can qualify to work anywhere in Mount Sinai, but I'd say that those, those opportunity to start expand your data horizon 
hopefully will give me some leverage if I need to consider to look elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And also working, if you're working with, you know, fundraising uh, solicitation, there is some marketing component that you could also associate yourself with. Uh, when we were in a lockdown, we worked with a, um, a vendor who were doing it pro bono to try to push uh, push for a donation to help with the COVID relief effort in Mount Sinai. So through that experience, I work with a lot of the kind of industry expert in the media world who talks about that the world that they're in. So I got to breathe a little bit to know, is that what I want to do? Turns out, no, is a pretty cutthroat business. It's also very hard to find work-life balance. I don't think, it's interesting. It's and interesting. Like in data it's interesting. within marketing. Yes. Yes, yeah. it's interesting. It's very interesting, but I don't want it. I mean, the segmentation, that whole world is the same, but I don't really know if I want to be doing that. But if I if I really would see myself having that kind of, having to make a lateral move, those would be the two obvious pathways beyond for a nonprofit or even in a for-profit sales environment. Mm-hmm. Cause I could make well, a case that it is. It sounds like there's a benefit to working at a larger organization or, you know, a, a, a system of organizations where you can get exposure to different kinds of functional areas and their data needs as almost like this try before you buy, like, here's how I could expand my skills, but here, here's also how you can learn from, from absorb some of the knowledge from different stakeholders, figure out, do I actually want to do that? Would I want to make a move into a data role in that, in that kind of world? Because otherwise it sounds like there's this risk of getting a bit pigeonholed if you, if you develop certain domain expertise and it it can be difficult to like move outside of that. Uh, Yes and no. I, I, I do agree that there is a lot of ways you could try to connect with peers inside uh, a big environment to try to pick their brains and see what their days, what what a typical day of their world is like, and then get a, get and then imagine yourself whether or not I can and cannot I, I should I should not become that. Um, I do have to say that working in a small place do have its own benefit in the sense that they don't have enough bodies mm. to deal with a variety of situations where data would come into play. When I work at the new museum, I am the only data person. I end up taking over the visitor services database to, to make sure people get their tickets, to be able to get barcode scan, and the members would get a free ticket, and the system would recognize those, or discount code, and so on. The, there's more opportunity to put yourself in the position where I could take that on as well. I could do this. I could do this. I could do this, mm. because there's just not enough body. To, 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 to spread that around. So it depends on how you position yourself and how, how you appeal to the powers that be that you are interested in taking on more and that you give, you, you, you somehow get their trust that you could be, you could be able to handle, you're able to handle this. And mm-hmm. I have been fortunate that I haven't really got that much pushback for wanting to step up. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. It sounds like there is this, there are benefits to working in a, in a smaller group. Maybe there's benefits to working in a larger organization, but it's about what I find cool is that you have really carved out those opportunities for yourself. You've found ways to kind of expand the scope of your work and add to your skill set so that when those, when those opportunities arise to contribute in, in different areas or to to like take on more responsibility as the one data person, then you can step up. So I'd love to just hear more about like, what is your, what is your greatest advice for people who want to make transitions like you did from one, from one field to another, one transit, one uh, industry to another, or who want to, you know, upskill themselves if they do decide they want to, to change jobs entirely. Yep, I say there's about three aspects of it. It is a lot of self-initiative. I think in the data world, especially, things move very quick. There is never going to be just this empirical set of body of knowledge and that 
once you master it, you don't need to revisit this or add to it. You have to sort of like learning. It's not that I learn like to learn everything, but if something compels me to uh, to to get to dig deeper, that learning kind of come effortless. You just initially just naturally want to look at more. You just go to Google and you look at this link, you look at that link, and then you just eventually just start doing more and more of that. And a lot of a lot of what I like about my world is that I could do this on the job, but I could do this off the job. I do like to dabble sometimes, even though it's five o'clock, um, I still would take my own free time in the after hour days, just do it because I like doing it. So ask yourself, do you see, do you have that tenacity to just keep doing, to keep going yeah. to the point that you don't really look at the clock? And a lot of self in self-starting learning, there's so much to learn out there. Um, people are generous in the data science world. You need to look up something. It's always the mouse click away in Google. They would tell you everything, stack overflow. It's there's votes, there's vote system for the answer. You know that the one that has the upvote the most, probably that is the go-to answer. It wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't go far. You, you mean, I'm sorry, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be lead astray. Yeah. Um, and I do find that talk to people with the career that interests you is a big thing when you meet someone who who you admire and who would inspire you follow them on linkedin befriend them see what they see what inspire them see what see what they study see what see 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 what kind of after our continuing education that they they themselves pursue and and those are in a lot of ways a shortcut for you to know that um if if it works if it works for him then maybe there's a chance it works for me too, I mean going through school in some ways do I mean like in the self learning world if you go from if it's a spectrum with self learning versus a structured learning, self learning in all ways is trial and error. You don't always know if this is what you need, but you have to keep looking. So you have spent you end up spending a lot of time just going through eliminating possibility, whereas structured learning, someone just give you these are the set of things you need to know in the course of two years and if you know them you get a degree and so that it cut it just sort of short change so, so kind of give you a shortcut of not having to deal with all this noise that 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 is not required of what you need to do in some way following the people you admire and see what they like and and like the page that they like subscribe to the thing that they are also interested in it is in a way trying to create your own self-paced learning through some structured means because of a proven success case yeah um the third part is yes once you have done your learning you ha- you kind of have to show it you have to demonstrate that you you can make what you learn into some kind of a deliverables um if you are in the if you like data visualization if you like putting that kind of a data products together there are a number of opportunity in the internet where you could post your data product portfolio tableau has a public site that's free you can use you can publish all kinds of analysis data analysis to showcase what you can do with the data and how you organize it and your Tableau skill set. Employers who are interested in hiring for Tableau user and Tableau uh, 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 whiz love to know that there is something that you already done on your own that they could have a sort of assurance that you know what you're talking about. Because one of the things that I find is very hard to gauge during a job interview when we interview candidates who claim they know Excel is that until you put them in front of a very complicated spreadsheet, you really don't know, you really can't suss out how much they really think they know without seeing it. So I say using Tableau Public is a way for us to gauge how well you know Tableau. Our pub is for those who like to have do their own R analysis, and that's a free platform for you to publish your R markdown and your R script. R is also a free open source data uh, as a sort of a sort of programming statistical platform that is very a bit code heavy but lots of free courses out there for you to learn 
And last, last but not least, there is so much data through different local municipality from federal down to yours, you know, city level that you could play with just to get yourself a portfolio for Tableau or some kind of a statistical analysis. Those data is out there for you to use and it is basically pretty low risk. You make an analysis, no, nothing, no, 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 no decisions being made. So therefore there's no really, you, you, feel, you should feel comfortable to explore. And that is something that we didn't have back in, say, when we were in college. This yeah. just abundance of data. Now, I, I like the idea of having a portfolio of data projects or data analyses that you've completed specifically, especially using these um, open source data platforms. Uh, you know, you've, you've probably created design portfolios, art portfolios, and you've also probably created data portfolios. What is the kind of a, a principle for how you organize that work? I mean, do you, would you recommend that people have projects using different data tools, different software platforms to show a variety? Or how do you have any kind of key advice for people in creating those portfolios for prospective employers? Uh, always show your best self be selective. Not everything is going to be good enough to be a showpiece. Uh, you, you know, artwork, same way. You don't, not everything you do is going to be great. You got to throw away a lot of stuff uh, or don't show a lot of stuff. Um, and your beginning, your first Tableau dashboard or uh, whatever reports that you make is probably not going to be your best. But then showing them doesn't really necessarily say anything too negative. You show what you have, right? You show what you have. And if you're the beginning part of your uh, career, you're not gonna, it's understandable. You're not gonna be very good at what you're doing, but then the fact that you did it. Some of the times it's just a matter of just the effort. Showing that you have what it takes to put yourself out there, basically it's half the battle. A lot of us are very shy, right? And we don't like the, the skeptic, we don't like to be, we don't like to be ridicule or be critiqued in so open man in an open manner so some of the times it's just heck getting over yourself to actually put something out there and own it yeah. um i say the bravery part is what would uh what would be the most empowering once you realize you put it out there uh share with the world and get feedback share with linkedin and your friends might chime in and say hmm, maybe add some more of this maybe take something out that might be a little redundant take their advice gets a conversation going. That is kind of how you grow. And the more you do it, you can take out the old one you do and then just keep swapping until you feel like you have something that you, you feel proud of. And that will be eventually something you can talk about in a job interview. Hmm. Because I think those portfolio pieces is what they would, it's, it's, it's what would drive the conversation about how you know, because it is something concrete. It is something you've done. It's not hypothetical. It is, it is something that you can grasp and that you can elaborate on and showcase who you are as a data science guru or expert. Yeah, yeah. I think that all of us have seen those job descriptions that say self-starter wanted. You know, I think, especially in this like really com competitive data world, having the bravery and the tenacity to put yourself out there and show this work you've already done on your own time can be really valuable. Uh, so I think, what I what I personally find so interesting about your your career trajectory is that you have really identified those opportunities to grow your own school, skill set and to learn more. I mean, obviously, we at Pragmatic Institute and the Data Incubator believe in this, always finding ways to to grow and to learn on your own time or in more structured environments. I mean, I think that's so important, especially in data, because. The data world changes very quickly. And as you've said, like back, back in the 90s, it looked very different from how it looks today. So thank you so much for, for sharing a little about your experience. If people want to drop more questions in the chat, I think that for those who want to, uh, to learn more about how to advance in their data careers and to connect their work to larger business outcomes, we've just released a new course at Pragmatic Institute 
business-driven data analysis. So business-driven data analysis was developed in part with the help of our data advisory board. Eugenia is one of those data advisory board members. It teaches a proven repeatable approach that you can leverage across data projects and tool sets to deliver timely data analysis with actionable insights. So this is one of our portfolio of offerings at the Data Practice at Pragmatic Institute. We also have the Data Incubator, which has intensive and immersive fellowship programs across data engineering, data science, data analytics. So if you want to get that intensive grounding and technical skills so that you can launch a career in data science, I would head to the data incubator. If you want to then figure out how to connect your work to larger business uh, objectives and show that actionable business value of your data work, I would head to Pragmatic Institute. Our first session for business-driven data analysis begins on November, uh, November 15th with sessions every Monday and Wednesday. So you can register online at pragmaticinstitute.com data. And I'm also going to drop a link in the chat. But thank you so much, Eugenie. I, I think this has been really valuable, especially for people who are navigating those transitions for, for women in STEM, but really anyone who wants to learn how to get that kind of edge in the data world. So thank you so much. And for everyone on the call, I hope you can join us for our next Women in Data webinar installment. We will share details when that is scheduled. So thank you so much. Thank you, Erin. Thank you very much for coming. Bye, everyone.